1: We are living through an age of exponential change. Faster computers, better software and bigger data means that today's society is defined by constantly accelerating technologies. So in this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Azim Azar, writer, technologist and creator of the acclaimed Exponential View newsletter. And he speaks to Roz Irwin about his new book, Exponential. And how from businesses to political institutions we can adapt to the new powers of technology and ensure human values aren't left behind. It's a really fascinating conversation and if you do enjoy it you can find a link for Azim Mazar's new book in the episode description. But now let's go to the episode.
0: Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Rosamund Irwin, the media and technology correspondent of the Sunday Times. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Azim Asar, creator of Exponential View, Britain's leading platform for an in-depth tech analysis. His weekly newsletter is read by more than 200,000 people from around the world, and his hit podcast has featured guests including Reid Hoffman and Mariana Mazzucato. He's a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Futures Council and a contributor to publications including the Financial Times, Prospect Magazine and the MIT Technology Review. And he's the author of the new book, Exponential, How Accelerating Technology is Leaving Us Behind and What to Do About It. Welcome today.
1: Thanks so much, Ross. Really excited uh, to be here.
0: One of the premises of your book is that we're at this turning point that we haven't seen for nearly 500 years um, in sort of technological terms, so since mm-hmm. the arrival of Gutenberg's printing press. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you, first of all, to categorize what makes us know that we're at a turning point.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, it's always uh, a bold claim to make, right, to say that we're at a special moment in in, in history going back 600 years. So I had to think quite hard about before I, I made that uh, assertion. You know, I think that we, we all recognise that we live in a world that is infused with much more technology uh, than when we were teenagers, and however old you are, really. And that that technology is showing up in all sorts of strange places, whether it's supercomputer smartphones uh, that we own, whether it's the way we now have our GP consultations, uh, the idea of having a, a, a genome sequence to figure out our propensity for a disease or electric cars. These things all look like, um, you know, they, they would be science fiction if you'd been a teenager like me in the uh, early to mid-1980s. So that's, that's easy. That's easy to see. But the contention that we're, we're in a, at, a, at a turning point, I think, arises from some, some simple facts, some things that we could observe happened between about 2011 and 2014. Uh, so, in 2011, Apple became the biggest company uh, in the world. It replaced ExxonMobil, the oil company. And 2013 became the last time that Exxon actually was ever the biggest company in the world. In 2015, there were about one and a half billion smartphones sold. In 2006, not a single smartphone had been sold. So that turning point, which happens around 2010 and 2015, is a point where we saw, first of all, the ubiquity of this one one of these incredible exponential technologies, computing. It was secondly where this was actually reflected in the structure of our industries. Because the world's largest companies in 2008 or 2009 were companies of Henry Ford's era, General Motors, ExxonMobil, the oil companies, AT&T, General Electric, founded by Thomas Edison. And by 2014, 2015, heralded first by Apple, the world's largest companies were all exponential age firms built on these technologies. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Facebook, Amazon and these Chinese companies. So that for me is marks a really significant phase transition because it tells us that the technology is ubiquitous and it's now been reflected in the structure of industry and the structure of our our economies
0: across history people have often felt very fearful about change so people were afraid a bit of lifts of the telephone of tv but today, you know, there are studies that you quote in the book that say people are very nervous that the pace of technological change is happening too fast. What does it do psychologically to people to live through a period where there is so much change so quickly?
1: Well, we're not made up and constituted to Enjoy large amounts of, uh, of of change, especially when it's change that we feel that we can't control. When when we feel we're in the driving seat, it's it's less of a, a, an issue. And so, you can imagine that there is quite a lot of anxiety that's being uh, expressed at the moment. And I think that anxiety gets expressed in people's attitudes towards technology. Um, Edelman, which is a PR company, runs a global trust barometer, and in the west certainly attitudes towards technology and technology companies have really declined significantly uh, since about 2016 2017 so there is a sense of really really deep uh, anxiety and it does get reflected in in at least in in surveys but i also think it gets it gets reflected more widely in society in the the, the notion of uh, the declining sense of of trust the decline in the quality of the civic conversations that we have because people who are fearful will often and, and can't control the source of that fear they don't feel they have agency towards it will often look for other causes and so while I'm I'm not saying and I don't argue in the book that it's because there are loads of iPhones and they keep doing different things that there was a turn against immigrants or there was a turn towards Donald Trump. I would argue that it contributes to the atmosphere of a sense of lack of control. And there are some really interesting processes which which we can look at, and I look at in the book, which show how the the, the development of these technologies has actually contributed to some of the schisms and inequalities that did help to foster some of the political change.
0: One of the ideas that you explore in the book, and we hear so much from Silicon Valley and you ultimately reject, is that the bosses in Silicon Valley tend to see technology as neutral. And the kind of idea is that how humanity uses the technology is the problem when things go wrong, like like what you've just mentioned. Mm. But you really categorically say it from the beginning that it's a fiction that technology is neutral. Why Mm. do you think that?
1: Well, First of all, the boss the reason a boss says uh, technology is neutral is because it's so easy to do that. that makes your day job really simple. I made it, it's lovely. What you or your, your neighbor do with it, that's your business and and I can sort of stroll off home and, and do whatever it is I do. Uh, it, it's a fiction because technologies are um, artificial constructs that emerge from people or groups of people embedded in society. And so our starting point, the way we look at these problems, the way we choose to um, look at X data rather than Y data is really, really determined by our experiences and our priorities. And all of that is part of a social construct. If I'm working for you know a company that makes sports cars i'm much more interested in thinking about the acceleration of the sports car than i am if i'm working for a company that makes uh, little uh, buggies that go around golf courses and so there there is an inherent participation b- b- by the individual designer in the design of of these products uh, but but the other thing i think that's important is that the products themselves tend to influence us and the things that we therefore care about Um, and so you can't unpick one from another really simple example was when selfies were starting to come out uh, in the start of the 2010s there was this facial expression i think called the duck face right which which didn't really exist right yes you know the duck face so so then we constructed the duck face and the technology has started to shape us so I think that there are two reasons why we need to, to dis- dispense with this idea of technology being neutral. The first is it gives technology bosses who have a lot of power uh, a pass and we need to keep power in check. The second is it's just manifestly not correct. Or perhaps the second reason is more important than the first.
0: And you say that the, sort of the aim of the book is to look at how to put technology back in the service of society. Mm -hmm. And I want you just in very general terms to say, what has gone wrong? Why is it not currently in the service of society?
1: Well, I mean, it's a wonderful question. Uh, The main reason is that the technologies that we have today are produced by a small number of, of companies. New companies are arriving all the time. And those companies have a tremendous amount of power, and we don't have ways of necessarily checking that that power and you know in the book, I go through a number of different ways in which that that manifests itself. One easy example is when we look at how companies operate in an economy economy we've always had rules about that we've had rules about what is good corporate behavior and what's bad corporate behavior and those rules largely used to keep industrial age companies in check. They didn't get too big, they didn't get too powerful, and then once in a while, the Monopolies and Mergers Commission or the Competition and Markets Authorities would come in and wrap someone on the knuckles. In the exponential age, the technologies themselves work differently and they sort of run around the rules that were developed during the 19th and 20th century. And these companies get bigger and bigger and they acquire more power, yet they don't appear to be prima facie breaking our old rules. So that's an example where the the technologies allow firms to slip outside of society's expectations for what it is to be in service of the greater good.
0: You introduced this idea of the exponential gap. So as tech you know, we see technology increase at a pace, at an incredibly rapid pace, but our institutions, from our political norms to sort of the the, econ- the economic side, they can't they simply can't keep up. What effect is that sort of exponential gap having in societal terms?
1: Well, you know, in in societal terms, the primary point is that it doesn't keep power under control. And it doesn't allow us to look after the people who are most impacted by by the changes. The the purpose of the regulatory institutions of our societies, whether it's habits and norms and customs or tax law or the welfare system or competition law, is essentially to say for a society to, to, to be free and to work, we need to keep power in check and we need to make sure that the worst off have have the, are, are protected in some way, have some mechanism out from the, their condition, and the exponential gap uh, is essentially me- means that the institutions that we rely on are not keeping pace with the job that they have been asked to do, uh, and that might be something as simple as we 've seen being discussed uh, this year about how you tax these exponential age firms, and if you don 't tax them you don 't get tax revenue they get to keep that and they get more powerful. And the people who benefit from the tax revenue through the provision of social services and welfare services have f- have fewer services to benefit from. And that's a great example of the exponential gap and why it needs to ultimately be closed.
0: And how do we go about the really big question? How do we go about shrinking this gap?
1: It is a big question. And um, you know there are two there are two approaches because we've got we've got two different things happening. We've got the the technologies racing away, and we've got society sort of uh, plodding along like me on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, first question: Can we do something about the the, the speed with which the technologies develop? And I argue in the book that it's pretty unlikely that we can, because the processes by which these technologies get faster are really baked into a, a society that is free, that allows free exchange of ideas, that allows people to collaborate. And so the when you combine that with ma- humans' natural desire to find shortcuts about anything, you're going to Construct this sort of set of accelerating technologies, but what you can do on that that top line is you can ask questions about the purpose of those technologies, you can ask questions about the design of the technologies you can ask questions about who they serve and I think if you if you start to do that, you can take the benefit of the acceleration and the faster progress but have channeled the direction of the technologies in ways that are are likely to be somewhat more socially beneficial and slightly less harmful. So that would be the the first track, which is let's point this rocket uh, in a slightly more helpful place. And then the second track is what can we do to improve institutional adaptation, right? How can we get, uh, you know, governments and international organisations and schools and families and cities and communities to adapt more uh, appropriately? Um, and that, you know, it's, it's not a, it's, there's no silver bullet there, but there are some ideas that I think I, I, I talk about. You know, I talk about um, education. I talk about the importance of new styles of safety nets. I also talk about something that I'm very, fond of but many people I think don't like that much which is the idea of greater subsidiarity towards cities because cities are where people live and it's where these technologies tend to be developed and they should have more political and economic control of of their environ that would allow us to have quicker adaptations to to these challenges than the pace at which a national government or or an international organization moves.
0: I want to look at one of the particular problems that you address in the book, which Mm. is to do with the gig economy, zero hours contracts. So obviously these businesses are becoming bigger and bigger, but labor laws haven't been able to keep up with the new challenges they're presenting. And, And you say that we're sort of creating a system of increasingly powerful firms and ever more powerless workers. So what do we do to address that fundamental problem? Because I think it's one that society is struggling with and, and politicians are struggling with profoundly at the moment.
1: The gig economy is really here to stay. It's too powerful. It's too useful for for companies and for enough workers. It's also really, really helpful. It's helpful to be able to have a bit more flexibility, to be able to check in uh, and, and uh, do things. But I think what we got wrong historically with, with the gig economy, as we see it through the lens of the te- technology companies, so not so much you know zero-hours contracts, which have been going on uh, in the UK for a while, but when things like Uber uh, started to show up in, in the UK in about 2012, 2011, we were really, really excited. And we sort of suspended our disbelief because we were desperate to look like a technologically advanced uh, country which looks absurd sort of in in hindsight and so we didn't ask the the simple questions around the the nature of this work uh, and how we can find ways of getting getting the best of both worlds now if gigacon if gig work is going to stay then what we need to do is we need to ensure that it is fair and it is it is decent and there is a fair trade off between the, the the worker and the and the gig platform in terms of their rights and and all the other things they can do and right now it's pretty tough if you're a gig worker uh, in even simple things like you want to get a loan or a mortgage you won't be treated, your income won't be treated the same way that a salaried worker will be. So your credit score will be worse and you'll pay a higher interest rate and you'll be able to borrow less. So it really it really hurts. So I think fundamentally, we need to identify that there is a new category of, of labour, that it requires new and additional rights. And those rights might include things like the right to Inspect the algorithms and the data that are used to rate workers and hand jobs out to them. The question is, how do you get there? And throughout history, the way that Labour has got a better bargain, higher earnings, more rights, has not been through the generosity of the employers. It's been through Labour being able to act collectively, workers being able to act collectively and present their case and bargain collectively. Increasingly, the issues are very technical and they're very, very arcane because it's about, you know, who, what data are you collecting? What algorithm did you use? Who are you sharing with it with? Are you blending it with third-party data? I mean, this isn't something that the average person, whoever they are, can deal with. So you need some resource. And so I think workers, especially in the gig economy, need to be able to form some form of collective bargaining entity where they can go in and essentially fight for their rights and figure out what those rights are. Now I don't think they necessarily look like the rights that workers enjoyed in the 20th century I mean they have to be re- reconceived but that's the way that's the way in which we take that step.
0: A secondary and slightly related problem is quite how big these companies some of these companies these big technology companies have become. the fact that they almost are monopolies. And this isn't sufficient competition. And then also the barriers to entry for anyone else wanting to go and do the same thing they're doing. What do we do about that? And are we too late on that score? Because these giant tech companies have got very, very big and they have been allowed to get very, very big. And it yeah. sort of feels quite late to step in and try to do something
1: I mean they, they're really, really enormous uh, when I, when I started my newsletter exponential view in 2015, apple's value on the stock market had just exceeded five hundred billion dollars, and I remember giving speeches and saying to people, "Hey, uh, you know apple's going up and, and it'll be the first trillion dollar corporation and the audiences would say, no, that's just crazy. It's, it's nuts. And you know, as we record today, Apple's market cap is $2.45 trillion. It's nearly five times higher. And it doesn't seem to stop because the, the forces of gravity that made these companies smaller, which were partially government intervention, but they were largely to do with how the industrial technologies work, no longer hold them them back. And these companies have got really good They've created a new management doctrine that allows them to expand horizontally, uh, that is into other sectors. So Apple makes watches and is getting into healthcare and is getting into cars, but also vertically. So Apple also now makes its own silicon chips, uh, and it will offer its own financial services. and And they don't seem to have the limits that you know, traditional management scholars would have argued industry had. And they would have made that argument only 30 years ago. So the, the, the question is, how do, how do we tackle this? And I think the, the approach, again, is uh, slightly multifaceted. You know, the first is that where there are infringements of the existing rules, we should now really go, off, go after them. And the US has been particularly bad, the FTC, at sort of doing that over the past 10 or 15 years. And they will now be better at doing that. Uh, The the second is that we need to reframe some of our rules and expectations around what monopoly actually is and what monopoly harms are. And again, I I would say the the new chair of the FTC, who is this brilliant woman called Lena Khan, has some interesting ideas in that line uh, along those lines. But the third is just this question of, you know, when you establish yourself as essential to society, even if it's through your own hard labour uh, and your own efforts, you, you start to develop societal obligations and we should ask them of you. So now that Google and Microsoft effectively run the digital equivalent of the roads and the water system for those parts of their business that look like those utilities, we should insist on them behaving the same way that we insist on my local water company, Thames Water, or BT Openreach uh, uh, behaving much higher transparency much higher disclosure much lower profit rates much more uh, higher obligations and clarity of what those obligations are now every one of these big technology companies is is quite different so those interventions i think the practicality the detail will vary from one from one to to the other but there is an idea that i that i talk about that these companies are now looking like infrastructure and where their businesses look like infrastructure, we should treat them as we have treated utilities in the past, with those rules perhaps updated for the twenty-first century. And um, and and then the final idea that I think is really critical um, for the. The companies in social media where there are lot, large networks of us connected, what they have traditionally done, those firms, is they've, they've not allowed us to go from one network to the other. So when you've got a mobile phone and I don't know, you know, you're with the network three, you can call me and I'm on uh, Vodafone. That's fine. You, one network talks to the other. And if you want to move to Vodafone, you can. A three has to let you do that and you get to keep your number. And you can call all your friends on three. Now, that doesn't happen between Instagram and TikTok or Facebook and LinkedIn. The social networks maintain this lack of interoperability and they argue, you know, that it's technically difficult to do. They've started to say it's desirable. I mean, Nick Clegg, who's the head of PR at Facebook, told me a few weeks ago that, oh, well, interoperability is, of course, a desirable thing, but it's technically hard to do. But these companies make hundreds of billions of dollars in profits every year. It's not that hard. So my third prescription is where there are networks, there needs to be interoperability. And that interoperability would mean that even if I'm not on Facebook, I could still reach my friends on Facebook and If you're on Facebook and I wasn't, you could still get hold on me. And that would start to weaken some of their um, inherent network-based power.
0: You mentioned Nick Clegg there. And one of the things that you identify as a problem in the book is that our politicians, so the ones still in politics, don't tend to have very much understanding of the world of technology and that there's a sort of culture gap going on between often you know, arts graduates often from mm-hmm. Oxbridge, and they kind of look down on the technology people or sort of the technological overlords really. How can you bring those two worlds together? And so we can have actually how our politicians addressing the problems and understanding, you know, the very basic thing of understanding those problems in the first place.
1: I'll be optimistic with my with my response to this. I mean I think, you know, if you if you had put bets on you know a seventy eight year old seventy something year old U S president being able to make say sensible things towards technology re- uh, regulation you might have said look it's it's not really going to happen but what Joe Biden has demonstrated is his ability to get pe- smart people around him at least when it comes to monopoly power around Amazon and Apple you know perhaps not not in other areas right now um, the so so one can be optimistic and say look countries can. Level up. When I look at around, there are a number of places: Estonia, Taiwan, uh, Finland, where there are really smart uh, politicians who understand technology. Within the UK, there are a number of MPs who I really think start to have started to, to demonstrate a really deep understanding. I, I won't, I won't, you know, share their names because I'll offend the other six hundred and forty-seven. And and I think the the other thing that we're starting to see is more and more people like me who've been in the industry for 25 or 30 years starting to say, look, we want to move into some form of public service in some way where we can bring our expertise along. I I think it's not really sufficient, to, to be honest, because there's only so much that you can do as an advisor. There's only so much the civil service can do. And I've worked with a number of civil servants over the past two or three years and have been incredibly impressed with their understanding of the dyna- the, the dynamics and their open-mindedness. I think the issue is that it's not necessarily even, uh, Ros, individual politicians. I think it's where political rhetoric lies, that people didn't really care about these issues in the UK for the last four or five years. And, and, and I think certainly on on the right and we've got a conservative government they haven't really found a way of updating the sort of thatcherist enterprise cry in a way that they they need to because you know my recommendations for the exponential age are, are are not anti-enterprise i mean i'm a i'm a startup investor right in my day job and i work with venture capitalists and founders all all the time it's to say that we need enterprise, but there's also certain types of business activities that we absolutely need the state to step in and start to uh, constrain. And I think that that, that sort of thatch protocol needs um, an update. And, and that, in, in a sense, with the Conservative government in power, I think is one of the barriers. It's one of the blockers uh, to getting really, really sensible about these issues.
0: One of your major themes as well in the book is the impact on globalization mm. of this this exponential uh, technologies and actually you're arguing that we will become more regionalized mm-hmm. and sort of have de-globalization what would happen in the scenario when things become you know producing things through technologies like 3d printing become more localized and so we have rich companies no longer needing poor companies to the same degree to manufacture their goods what will happen then
1: yeah i mean it's a really complicated and problematic problematic issue because uh, you know what we've already started to see in the last since i put the book to bed has been uh, companies who've traditionally manufactured in one place in like the semiconductor industry saying, we're going to man- manufacture locally and build factories in Germany, in the UK, in the US, which they hadn't done for 25 or 30 years. And so, so what that tends to do is it tends to leave the profits and the power with the owners of the intellectual property. And your, your the nature of the how value and profits flow through the supply chain changes. So you can imagine a scenario where these large global companies who own the know-how will simply hire local production to do the most mundane stamping out of a finished manufacturer and offer them a 5% profit margin or a 10% profit margin. And I think that could end up being quite problematic for, for local economies. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, when we go and buy a, uh, in the old days, you might go, go and buy a Starbucks and you pay three quid for your coffee. A whole bunch of that three pounds actually doesn't stay in the local economy. It goes back up to the faceless company that owns Starbucks brand and intellectual property. And that process could get extended across everything that we we buy and eat and, and consume. And so that, I think, forces us to think slightly differently about, you know, about taxation, about global taxation, and about what we ask of companies as they they sort of operate in this new kind of meta global but also highly regional and localized uh, economy.
0: We've talked mostly so far about all the negative side of this. Mm-hmm. I want us to look at a positive. And obviously we are still uh, in the midst of a pandemic. One of the positive elements that you talk about is the speed with which we managed to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. And when you compare that You know, reading the comparison with meningitis, they were shooting ninety years. Mm. um, There is a really positive element to this advance in technology. How optimistic are you that there are things like that where actually this sort of balances out some of the bad stuff? I suppose.
1: Yeah, I I am. I am optimistic that there's quite a lot of that uh, that out there. I mean, that story is just really remarkable because it touches on a whole. Number of the the foundations that I lay in, in the book. The genome sequence of this strange virus wasn't called co- um, COVID nineteen or SARS CoV two at the time. Was made available on the sixth of January, twenty twenty, and within a few weeks, the first vaccines had been created on the mRNA platform, and thousands of scientists were were looking. At that that gene sequence, and and you know that used ideas of um, open source and knowledge commons and you know machine learning for that moderna used to accelerate how they found the, the candidate vaccines and it was it was really, really remarkable. The thing to note about all of that, which was yes sitting on a bunch of exponential technologies, is that it was scientists and entrepreneurs uh, who did that, and it you know it wasn't your governments were not <laughs> sort of clunking around, getting in the you know getting in the way in any way, shape or or form. So one of the things that we know is that we can re- we can respond to these things very very quickly if we want. And what do we learn from the these exponential capabilities that got us this uh, these vaccines very quickly? You know, the first was that we had this knowledge commons, these open gene databases for virus sequences. Imagine. If the virus sequence had not been treated like that, but had been treated the way that, you know, a company treats a patent or a trademark or a trade secret, I mean, that would have been hoarded and no one would have had access to it. So I think we can learn that there are certain things that we want to put in the commons and that we want to collaborate with, not just between countries but across stakeholders of many different types and those might include future pandemics and when the next pandemic comes we will get the vaccine even faster it would also include cyber risks and and cyber threats and observing those and it should also include things to watch climate risks and 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 climate threats so we can do some sort of observation but but of course the big challenge of our age is is climate change. I mean, that is the the sort of most enormous thing that we have to contend with. And I think that, you know, I argue that we need more technology, not less, in order to, to tackle climate change. And I think we can take some sucker from what we saw with the, the, the pandemic response, which is that we can look at a wickedly hard problem that had taken 45 years previously, and we can now... Uh, Address it within a matter of weeks, that is to develop a, a vaccine to a new uh, to a new threat. We do have technologies that are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and so actually it 's much cheaper to to produce electricity from solar power than from fossil fuels now so so why wouldn 't you do that and so I, I can be optimistic about us having technologies that, with a great deal of hard work and a great deal of organization could help us tackle that, that challenge. But again, as I write, having the technologies is, is a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient because there are, whole, there are questions about values and governance that will determine whether we do this well or don't do this well. And I think that's also been you know, the story of the growth of these very large digital technology companies. Right? They're very powerful, but we kind of got the values wrong and we got the governance wrong, and that's why we feel a bit icky today.
0: One of the other things I took from your book, there's a brilliant story about a young woman called Laura O'Sullivan. And your book points out, and I'll let you tell her story, but that a young individual can use this technology in a way that, you know, wouldn't have been possible to do something really remarkable. Anyway, I'll let you tell her story. But but I think there's a sort of broader point to take from that. And it's
1: just I mean, Laura's story is just brilliant. And it's so uh, it's, it always brings a smile to my face. You know, I was well, I had to go to Dublin in January and, and uh, uh, you know, to go to the, the, young scientist competition that they host in Ireland every year. And it's absolutely the most uplifting afternoon you can you can spend. And I, you know, happened across one of these booths. And and I chatted to this young woman called a girl called Laura, and she uh, was from a college in Cork. And her project was to devise a an AI system that could look at cervical smears and predict whether they were abnormal or not. And it did so more accurately than a trained human doctor and the thing that's really just sort of baffling and remarkable about that is that this was Laura's first programming project I mean she hadn't really programmed before she said oh I think I went to a coding camp when I was 14 and here she is, age 17, uh, writing her first bit of software, and this is what it can do. And it really is a story of one of the drivers of exponentiality in, in our economy, because the tech, many of the techniques that Laura used hadn't existed even five years earlier. One of them, critically, was only three or four years old. Uh, it was called GANs, uh, Generative Adversarial Networks. And it was amazing that from a Californian lab and some guy writing a blog post that a teenager in Ireland who's never coded before can discover that this is the solution to a very, very intricate technical problem she had. She can read about it, find working code, write the code up into her own piece of software, get it to run and have this outcome. And it was really, really remarkable and, uh, you, know, you know, tremendous. And there are many other nuances to that story. And there were, her example was not unique amongst this, you know, this young scientist competition over in Dublin. There were there were other cases of it, but it was the one that really, really spoke to me. And I think when we think about being optimistic, that is something we we can be really optimistic about, uh, which is that, you know, knowledge in its, in its power can be more widely available, um, even in the most unexpected ways.
0: Um, my final question, rightly, you say it's incredibly hard to predict things when the world is changing very quickly, but I would like you to look, say, 10 years into the future, so that'd be mm-hmm. 2031. What will the world look like, just one or two predictions?
1: Well, I think the first thing is that we will have really started to live with climate change and that means that the extreme weather will will be worse there will have been many more floods and fires and migrations but we will have also started to see really really meaningful steps towards tackling that in terms of electric vehicles and smart virtual power grids and the removal of carbon from the atmosphere and the use of computing to make all of these predictions. So it'll start to feel different against the context of of our greatest challenge. Our day to day lives, I think, will also have really started to, to shift because we will be living much more within our cities and within our, our the four or five hundred metres of our homes through uh, delivery services, through remote medical consultations and through more locally grown produce. A lot of things will still look the same, but many things will be different. And I think it will start to feel distinctly different because there won't be so many petrol cars on the roads and there'll be lots of weird looking electric, smart electric buggies that we don't really have words for today. But, but you know, and I think we will really have start, started to get there. I mean, the other thing I think that we would see in the UK is we will see ourselves as consumers engaging with many more British companies and European companies uh, than we currently do, because today our technological surface is mostly mediated by American giants. And I, I think within a decade uh, that will have changed as well.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Uh, my pleasure, Ross. Thank you.
0: I'd like to thank Azim for a great discussion and thank you for listening. His book is Exponential, How Accelerating Technology is Leaving Us Behind and What to Do About It. I'm Rosamund Irwin, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared.